Welcome to In Conversation with Carl Wilder and my very, very special guest, Miss Annie Golden. Annie Golden had a very unique career and it sounds like a fairy tale. She was discovered by Milos Forman playing in CBGB with the shirts. She went on to work in Broadway plays, off-Broadway plays, did a short stint in um, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, among other things, had uh, work on Orange is the New Black, Frasier, memorable roles, even on Miami Vice, but it wasn't a fairy tale. Annie worked so hard for every role, for every moment, and I met her when she was doing the full Monty on Broadway. We met in Bryant Park, she was with her brother Mike and his baby boy, who was no longer a baby. We started talking, then we ran into each other again on 8th Avenue. Then a few days later, she was headed to bowling. We ran into each other again. And a week after that, on the subway, I was headed down to CBGB to see her concert. She was headed down there to give her concert. And I realized the universe is telling me that I must have this woman in my life. We became friends. I'm going to tell you about a very special moment at CBGB that night. Annie did a song called White Picket Fence that blew me away because she was singing about the house I grew up in. She was singing about my life. She was singing about my mother's life. She was singing about my family. She didn't know this and she didn't know how deeply impacted I was to hear a song about women who live in abusive households be championed and be sung by a strong, powerful woman. So I'm gonna start by letting Annie talk and she can say anything she likes, but I want to get your thoughts on that song and the impact it has on audiences. <laughs> uh, thank you, Carl. Um, yeah, uh, we met, remember that night we were on the subway and you had a bouquet yep. and I said, are those for me? And you <laughs> went, yes. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I thought you were going to date night and you were like, no, I'm heading down to see your concert. These are for you. I thought that was so... You're right. The universe, the stars had a line for us to be friends. And um, our story is as interesting as the rest of my career is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, White, White Picket Fence uh, uh, came about. It's uh, a Golden Carrillo composition, which after the shirts, Golden Carrillo came together in the 90s. And we have uh, three CDs out. And um, it was just subject matter I wanted to talk about. And um, Frank and I wrote it together. And then also, um, you know, I we wrote Guns of the Bigoted, which is about um, gun control and um, about the, not really control, but the, the use of gun, uh, gun violence, which is quite prevalent here in Brooklyn, where I live now, uh, during the pandemic. And uh, yeah, so uh, that's how it all came about. Yeah, there you have written an awful lot of music and much of it has a really deep impact on your audiences. My favorite from an emotional point of view is Clara Bow, uh, yes. because you eventually got the chance to be a silent film actress when you did Orange is the New Black and model yourself a little bit after someone who was very important to you, another Brooklyn girl who made it. Yes. Clara Bow, she was from Coney Island, Brooklyn, which is just a few stops away from where I live at the end of my subway line. So, um, yeah, I had read a book um, 
Frank already had that song pretty much uh, completed, and he had read the same book, the same biography. Um, and uh, so um, it was called uh, Running Wild, Clarabeau. And um, he played it for me, and we were amazed that we had read the same book and that we were moved by, uh, by her silent screen work and by her life as well. And so um, he gave it over to me and he wiped his uh, guitar solo and he let me put in a, a few more verses. And then he also um, put a bridge in there. So the song, I would like to think, um, even became more impactful uh, after we collaborated on it. It's, it's a fan favorite. Yeah, Clarabo. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of favorites, you know, too, that I find deeply impacting for you as a songwriter and a, really a poet because in many cases it begins with poetry for you what was the most heartfelt for you to write which song yeah oh um well uh they're all heartfelt for me i mean if you if you hear them if you hear the language uh the words that i'm speaking they're all heartfelt at the time. They're also all heartfelt uh, depending on the topic. Uh, so I guess, I mean, um, I could die happy having written uh, White Picket Fence, though. Okay, well, we agree on that yeah. one. Now, it's kind, of, <laughs> it's kind of impossible to have a conversation with anyone in New York, or in this case, Brooklyn, without mentioning what's going on virus-wise and what without mentioning what's going on in the theater right now. There isn't yeah. any. Tell me what you see as the future of the arts, because it's really kind of on hold there, although London is opening up theaters slowly. Um, well, I have to say, as, as has been my career, I've been blessed all along, all along the way. So when the shutdown happened, I did a podcast for Broadway Podcast Network called Bleeding Love. And the way that came about was that um, we had already recorded the songs for this lush, gorgeous uh, Broadway musical. Uh, and to pitch it and shop it around, we had recorded uh, the compositions. So we were in the studio in, I think, uh, 20, 2014 or 2013, and we did the songs. And then, right as the shutdown happened, Broadway Podcast Network and Harris Duran, he, um, he, he ended up directing it, but he also was the lyricist. And uh, Arthur Franz Bacon wrote the music. They said, we'd like to record the dialogue and release it as a piece, as a podcast. So there was all, all the Foley sound effects. And when I heard the finished product, I was so proud of it. I felt like I was sitting in the theater. So that's Bleeding Love on Broad, uh, Broadway Podcast Network. So right out of the gate, I was working when others couldn't. I did that project. I also did something for Audible. I did my, my friend had written um, a play called uh, The Chambori International Hotel Butterfly Club about her journey uh, with um, her, uh, her trans uh, awareness and um, her trip with the Chambori International Hotel in Thailand, where people go for their surgeries, uh, reassignment surgeries. So that was a world debut. I did that on Audible. And Audible 
sent me a 35-pound trap case with equipment. So I immediately called my tech wizard nephew. You know, I'm an ancient. I'm a I'm a dinosaur diva. This is not my real house. And I um and he came over and he set up the equipment for me. So that when we began, we rehearsed for a week via Zoom, and then we went to Amazon uh, Chrome and uh, Audible, and we recorded. So my bedroom, in a heat wave, and I'm on the top floor, so the sun is beating down on the ceiling all day. No air conditioning, no fan going, because for sound quality. And my bedroom turned into a prison and a sweltering hot box of creativity and. So I recorded Chambori International Hotel, a world debut play uh, on Audible, and I've done something for the Public Theater. I did a new musical directed by Lee Silverman, who directed the, uh, the revival of Violet that we did on Broadway. And this is nothing new for you and I, Carl, because you said that we met during Full Monty. During Full Monty was 9/11. I so, remember. Yeah, so so up until that point, the show must go on. Broadway never was dark, except on its designated dark days. Broadway shut down for 9-11. That had never happened. In fact, I went to my sister's home to pick up her children on that day uh, from school, and her husband was going across the Brooklyn Bridge to pick her up. And I said to him, Okay, you just have to be back by five because I have to leave for the theater. And my brother-in-law, who's, you know, a, a motorcycle club president, he said, there ain't no opera tonight, baby. There ain't gonna be no opera. Everything is shut down. There's nothing going on. So that was the first time I dealt with it, with um, having a Broadway run and then no show and staying home. Uh, so this is nothing new to us, to you and I, Carl. So um, I think art will find a way. I mean, I've been uh, as busy as I was uh, before the shutdown, which I know is rare. I had an HBO pilot uh, air right when the shutdown happened. It was called Run, and I did it with Donald Gleason and Merritt Weaver. I, I was in that, uh, my leading man was Stephen Henderson, and we did that on HBO and that aired. So I was very, I was very present in a very high profile way when everyone was shut, shut down and shut in and all they could watch was, you know, their, their only outlet was television. I also did high maintenance. They repeated my high maintenance episode, which the writers of, the creators of high maintenance had written that for me. And um, so I've just been really, really very fortunate. I've been doing podcasts. I've been doing interviews, talking a lot about my career, like it's over. Gotcha. Monday on Fox TV is my new series that was created by Tate Taylor, who um, uh, adapted the book, The Help, and directed the film. And he also did the James Brown story with Chadwick Boseman as James Brown called Get On Up. So Tate is making his debut into television. It's called Filthy Rich, it's on Fox TV, and it's Kim Cattrall from Sex and the City, her return to series television. So I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm going strong. <laughs> well, you, you never take a break and your energy is one of the things that I've always admired about you. It has never waned. 
you get on stage and you sparkle and there's there's oh, no way about it you. that's what it means to be a star but i'm going to throw a few names at you people that you've worked with okay. a couple of whom yes. i have known pretty well a couple i haven't but the first one is one who has been very, was very dear to me my entire life and because of you i sat across from her at the algonquin one night or not the algonquin the uh the round table uh Yes, it's Sardis. Sardis, thank you. Eartha Kitt. What was that like for you? Yes. I thought your yes. scene with her teaching you about sex was brilliant. Actually, um I was so fortunate um of course to have worked with her, but when she passed, it was the last live theater thing she had done. So all of those clips of her showing me um how to be sexy. <laughs> I had the greatest teacher. Um <laughs> Uh, all, that clip was the one that everyone used. Um, it was magnificent to be with her. Um, when I was in the Fulmonte, Kathleen Freeman was uh, struggling with cancer. And when I w was in Mimi Ledoc with her the kit, she was also battling cancer. Uh, both ladies went into remission during the run, but ultimately had succumbed to that terrible disease. And it was... Um, the stories, I mean, you say the Algonquin, the yeah, round table, I mean, yeah. just sitting in a, in a dressing room and she had to share a dressing room. So they put a gorgeous drape across a tapestry and a gorgeous uh, plush upholstered chair for her to sit at. So uh, my, mine and the other ladies, our mirrors were on one side of the room and hers was far in the corner. But let me tell you, she always pulled that curtain wide open because we were just gypsy girls together, putting our makeup on and getting ready to go on. So listening to great stories of her, and she's seen some stuff. I mean, what we're dealing with now, institutionalized racism, she saw some stuff and she enlightened us and she gave us some really good stories and from her own life. So that was, it was a thrill. It was a thrill to sit with you by my side and there's a kid across the table. Yeah, that was pretty special. Um, you yeah. you have been impacted by a lot of entertainers that you have seen over the years, from silent film actresses to others. Who do you think, one person named you recently as being a big influence on her, and it shocked me, um, also on a, a podcast, but who do you think that might be? You... Uh, <gasps> that I influenced? Yeah, she said you were one of the greatest people to see live in concert. Oh, I don't know. Was it was it Cindy? Yes, it was. <laughs> Cindy Lauper. No, because when when she did that, oh, and here on my first name basis, Cindy, um, uh, <clears throat> when she said that, everybody, everybody contacted me and said, do you realize that? Because anyone who's in my life knows uh, from the shirts days that um, when we were coming up, uh, her management uh, kept me apart from her. You know, it, it's this thing also, this institutionalized sexism where they try to pit women against women and uh, cat fights. And um, uh, they kept her, her management at the time kept me away from her, kept me separate, didn't want any comparisons, didn't want any sisterhood of any kind. And we kind of, over the years, we were able to dispel that. And then when she won her Tony for Kinky Boots and, you know, writing the, writing the music for Kinky Boots, 
then she was then she was you know in my wheelhouse and she had done three penny opera and so so we saw each other coming and going way after the CBGB's days so it was um and we're still going so I mean my friends were amazed at that too so they were like well you know what Cindy Lauper just said and I was like I had no idea so that's great to know yeah it is, it is kind of great to see people who've had uh, a different success than yours also admire you and there's a lot of them um I'll never forget yeah. going backstage with you to meet Patty Lapone and she was so thrilled to see you Yes. Yeah, she made a big deal. I was like, "Oh, who knew? I think I was actually I was there to see Michael Cerveris and That's right, yeah. um, I was on I was on his list. I think it was Sweeney Todd and I was on his list and then she heard that I that I was in the building and she just went out to her balcony and you know, yelled down, uh, "Send Annie up when when Michael's through with her." <laughs> well, I mean it was it it's nice to see you get the recognition from your peers because you know you haven't gotten a Tony yet but there is a role one role that you've mentioned to me that i think you should have the chance to play if not on broadway paper mill playhouse the berlin theater london wherever and it's a kooky girl in new york who raises her nephew what role do you think that could be i think it's jerry herman's name yes Yeah. Yeah. That just really speaks to me. I mean, I'm the, you know, I'm now I'm the dowager. I'm now I'm the the spinster aunt, but I mean, I was always people go, oh, you know, "Hey, do you have children?" I'm like, "No, I'm the oldest of six, so I always have had little ones in tow." And then when my siblings started having and it's my my nephew Thomas's birthday today, as a matter of fact. And um you know and so then then it was the children when my sisters had to work and my days were free if the kids were on a break like thanksgiving or a summer break then they were mine and i would just in this very apartment we would have sleepovers we would do we would do a bath night we they would cook they would cook their chicken tenders at my stove or they would uh, cook spaghetti or we would make ice cream sundaes so Mame is really close to my heart and um I never do get the glamour roles uh but Mame certainly is one so if they could um if, if they would be doing a production of it I would be more than happy to be called up and invited. Well, I'm going to spread the word on that. And you okay. gave us a natural transition into family. You have yeah. had you're very close to your family. You have been wonderful with them in so many ways. I remember when your brother Mike was in the hospital and to get you away from the hospital bed I'd have to take you to a show it was the only way yeah. to get you out a little bit it was a tough tough time for you and you lost another brother yeah. uh young and your parents also young so you sort of became the matriarch of your family even though I still think of you as the baby sister you told me you were not um how right. how has family impacted your life and how does it continue to impact your life. Well, I think it's a really good litmus test. It's a real reality check. I mean, I didn't thank you Lord, but I didn't need that much uh, you know, uh uh heart hardship hardship and heartbreak in my life, but um it's just a reality check to what matters and um we were as you as you know, we were scheduled to do this and uh I was getting reports from my other sisters that uh 
my my other sister was not doing well and I had to go out there and see for myself. And she had invited me on the day that we were supposed to talk and I said to you, I, I really just have to see for myself what's going on. And I was glad that I did it. And now I go out to see her every week. She's in New Jersey, so. Um, I, and I don't have a car. So uh, I go out there every Wednesday and I take the edge off of it for her. She feels less overwhelmed. Uh, she seems to be doing better. I don't want her to feel alone. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm the oldest sister and the parents died young and then uh, the boys followed suit. And so now it's just the sisters. So there's four of us. And then all the, all their children, yeah. all the nieces and nephews. I think I've met them all. The nieces and nephews are having, yes. <laughs> and they, they all have children. So it's a it's a big family. So it's a, a real joy for me to, to have them. And also then I have my band and um, that's like another tribe and another family because I grew up with shirts. And, um, and I have my band, which is, you know, when my brother was my drummer and when he went down on his motorcycle, that's why I was sitting by his bedside because he, yeah. he came out of his coma and he suffered a traumatic brain injury. And then he came back after eight years. We didn't play for eight years, my band. And we waited for him and he came back. And then when ultimately, um, uh, when he did pass away due to complications from his injuries, um, after making his comeback at the cutting room, um, his son took over. The boy that you met in the park that day. The baby, yes. Yes. So he took he took he took my brother's play. I waited. I gave him a live CD of our songs. I knew he was accomplished, so young. And my backup singer and collaborator with compositions and arrangements is Lisa Burns, and her husband is Sal Maida, and he's my bass player. And Paul McKenzie, I got from uh, Artie LaMonica. Who is uh, the shirt? Who's from the shirt? So, um, you know, we and their son Dylan Maida was my piano player. So it was Annie Golden family and friends. So um, we just kept going. And speaking of family, I have so so many people that I uh, that, that I take to heart. Um, when we lost Milos Foreman two Aprils ago, I was invited by his family to go to Prague and sing at his memorial at the Zoltan Palace in Prague. And it was all day long, Milos Forman Day. There were white tents set up around the perimeter of the, uh, you know, the grounds of the palace, which is like a national park. And there were white tents and they were showing Milos's films when he was, um, you know, the Young Turks and he was the new revolution uh, coming up in, uh, in Czechoslovakia and then his American films. And then inside the palace was um, set up a stage and the Prague Philharmonic played all the, the tunes, all the Mozart tunes, the Mozart compositions. And um, I sang Walking in Space and Good Morning Starshine with a Czechoslovakian band called Meteor. And then at the end of the night, I got up to sing with the Prague Philharmonic a gorgeous arrangement of Frank Mills. Wow, that must have yes. been a trip. And I know, I know how long these things take to get done and get mixed and get released because his sons Peter and Mate are are doing a documentary on their father, so they filmed everything. 
but I had my little micro recorder, Carl, and I put it on my sheet and I pressed record so that I would have it so that I could assess for myself how it went. Because I was so full, I just wanted to bring it in the best possible way. But sometimes you get emotional. Anyway, it was phenomenal and they filmed it and they're working on a documentary about their father's work and I reached out to Treat Williams I reached out to Michael Douglas I reached out to Woody Harrelson I reached out to Edward Norton and they all did um, video tributes that the twins they're identical twins Peter and Matty um, they uh, they showed the videos and in English they did Czechoslovakian um you know, the subtitles. And when Mueller spoke in Czech, they did English subtitles. So they're putting that together and I can't, I can't wait for that to come out. That will be tremendous. I'm looking forward to that. I'm gonna ask you about your memories of one night. We're coming, amazingly enough, we don't have that many, we've got about 10 minutes left. But uh, when you came down to New yeah. Orleans, and you went outside yes. and were drinking a glass of Pinot Grigio, Santa Margarita. Uh, you were surrounded by naked hippies watching the movie Hair. What did that feel like for you? Yes. That was pretty awesome. I mean, um, it's so funny that you should mention that because um, last summer I did a show uh, that was written for me by Joe Iconis. Uh, of uh, Bounty Hunter, Hill, yeah. and yeah, Broadway Bounty Hunter, and I took off because I took off two nights. One was the uh, premiere of the finale episode of seven seasons of Orange is the New Black, so I had to be there because Nona made a cameo appearance uh, in the finale episode. All of us did. They brought us all back. And then I took off because I was going to the Avalon Theater in Connecticut to its um, Art Deco Splendor, the Avalon Theater, and we all um, we all uh, reunited. So we were all there after 40 years. We reunited. We watched the movie on a huge screen, and then we did a Q and A afterwards. It's very interesting because you say and sing very little in that movie, yet Milos Forman used you for all of these close-up and reaction shots. So we're yeah. constantly looking at your face, and I think that's one of the reasons that the audiences remember you so much from the movie and relate to you so much because your face was our face. You represent us in this wonderful kaleidoscope of music in the park and it's, we become you and you become us. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, when I did watch the movie again, I realized that it was the precursor uh, to Norma Romano on Orange is the New Black. And Mueller had told me that when he edited the film and then when he did, when I did not sing, my song did not make the cut oh. in the movie. He took me out to dinner. I've been, I've been very fortunate. You're not really treated this way, but I, I've always been very, very fortunate to be treated uh, so, uh, you know, lovingly and affectionately and respectfully. So my song didn't make it in the movie, although we shot it. And he did say, 
He said, you have so many close, you are my go-to, you are the heart and soul of the tribe. You tell the audience what to feel, how to feel, to be afraid, uh, to be joyful, uh, to be worried. He said, anytime I didn't think a scene worked, I would say to my editor, Lindsay Freeman, what do I have on Jeannie? Show me Jeannie. And you would always be listening, you would always be engaged, and I would be able to put a button on a scene and tell the audience where we were going by looking to Jeannie. So, so I, yeah, I was aware of that. And so back to your country club in New Orleans, yeah, naked hippies, poolside, watching the movie. I remember you on your bicycle going to the blockbuster, sweaty, coming back, oh, I got the movie and start running it. It was hysterical. And that was the first time I was in New Orleans, right before Katrina. Mm -hmm. And then I got to go back to New Orleans immediately after Katrina, uh, when I did I Love You, Philip Morris with Jim Carrey. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and Filthy Rich, my new series, is filmed in New Orleans. You're kidding. Nope. <laughs> So everything comes around full circle in a sense. Full circle. And I play, don't be scared. I look really awful in my, in my premiere episode. I'm in, the, I'm in the premiere, but I look really awful. But don't worry, because I said, Tate Taylor, you owe me big time. Me being seen on screen like this. And he said, um, I'll make it up to you. I promise I'll make it up to you. And I'm in two other, two other episodes where I look closer to myself. But uh, I play a swamp woman. I speak in tongues. I have that that Norland Cajun, you know, lilt. And um, I'm so excited. Well, there's nothing wrong with being ugly for a role. Uh, yeah. <laughs> someone we both know, <laughs> Betty Buckley, did a stint on, uh, I think, season two.